The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today's episode is an enlightening conversation with Shelley Cram, the insightful author of My Father is the Gardener. She writes regularly for her devotions blog at gardeningindelight.com. She speaks enthusiastically to garden clubs and faith groups about plants of the Bible, how to connect gardening work and harvest joys in the Word of God. Shelley's background includes a Master's of Architecture from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Work in architectural and garden design, leadership in local Bible study, prayer groups, Toastmasters International, and GardenCom, Gardening Communicators International. In this engaging discussion, Shelley shares her unique perspective on the profound connection between ancient scriptures and contemporary gardens. We'll explore her journey from morning journaling to the laundry, yes, you heard me right, and out into the garden. Learn about the origins of her inspiration and how an encounter with the book Secrets of the Vine sparked a deep connection between the Bible and her endeavors. We delve into the pages of her book, examining the biblical plants that serve as metaphors for life's profound concepts. From fig leaves to mustard seeds, Each plant carries a story waiting to be uncovered. Today's episode is a captivating crossroad of spirituality and horticultural insight. This is episode 136, Harvesting Hope, Nurturing the Soul in the Garden, with Shelley Crown on the Garden Question Podcast. Shelley, you have authored your second book, My Father is the Gardener. What inspired you to write about the oldest gardening book? What inspired me was a little book trying to connect to that big book. I did not read the Bible growing up at all. I found that this big, thick book, when I got into my 30s and I was looking for some ancient help in raising my family, surely there's some wisdom in this big, thick book, but I really had trouble relating to it and knowing where to get started. I did read other Christian books, and one came along to me called The Secrets of the Vine by Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. It's a little book. It's only about John 15 a few passages there, but any gardener knows that's one of the best, talking about where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. This little book took us out to a vineyard. The author actually went and stayed with a vine dresser at his vineyard, and the author just hung out and followed the vine dresser around for a couple of days. He watched how the vine dresser worked and how he moved among the vines and how he cared for them personally and tenderly. The author just felt like he was seeing those verses in John 15 just come alive. Everything about how this normal, humble man, vine dresser, cared for his vines was evident in what Jesus was saying and teaching. As the author unveiled that to me, I just thought, that is beautiful. This is beautiful because I expected God to be high and lofty, angelic, glowing clouds, that sort of thing, gold, gilt, halo maybe. But I did not expect him to be down to the dirt, accurate and true. I didn't expect him to get his hands dirty. I didn't expect him to walk and get dust on his feet or his boots or his sandals. When this 
author revealed that to me, I just thought, that's good. That's good. This is where I am down in the dirt. You know what I'm saying? So it just really was an invitation to learn more about what other plants are in there. If this is true about the grapevines, who else is in there? The oak trees and the olive trees. What does he mean by pomegranates? And what's a carob tree? Why does he keep talking about mustard seeds? It just opened a floodgate, I guess you'd say. I loved this one book, but I couldn't find many other books that really talked about these verses from a gardener's point of view, you know, from the vine dresser, from walking and tending the land, hands in the dirt point of view. I don't know. The book I wanted to read became the book I had to write. Yeah, the first time we talked, I said, I sure wish somebody would write the book that you wrote. I didn't feel like I was capable of writing that book, but I sure did want somebody to write it. So I really appreciate you doing that. I found it really interesting and brings all the scriptures to life. It does. And by the way, I didn't feel capable either. (laughs) Absolutely not. When God says it just takes a faith of a mustard seed, I barely had that much, but I don't have a background in horticulture even or in master gardening. I don't have a background in Bible scholarship. I don't even like to write, but it's just that compelling. It's just that exciting and compelling and poetic and relatable. It just drew me in. What can I say? I hope it draws you in too. Do you think it takes a lot of faith to garden? I think it takes an easy faith to garden. How's that? I think that gardening puts you right in that place of faith without even trying. You don't realize what's happening to you, and that's what's so wonderful about it. But just putting a seed in the ground, you stop and think. We take these things for granted, but you stop and think. A seed, that may as well be a flick of dirt. Why would you think there's anything to it? Why would you think that would work to put this little speck in the dirt and water it and out comes a plant it's crazy but it really (laughs) trains you in that way yes you end up with faith as a gardener you don't have to start that way though in gardening we are experiencing a big native plant movement why should we be interested in plants from a totally different part of the world and a different climate That is a great question, and I'm going to try not to sound on my soapbox, (laughs) but native plants are, of course, wonderful. I have to assume we are all turning to native plants because we want our gardens to thrive, and we don't want to have to work too hard at it, and so if this plant is comfortable in this climate, in this region, if this is where it's from and where it originated, where it's adapted to, then surely it will do well in my garden, and I won't have to do so much, right? But you know what? Gardening is about creativity. You may not think that when you get started. I do talk more to beginners. I have a sort of beginning outlook. And I still consider myself a beginning gardener, even though I've been at this 30 years. (laughs) So that just goes to show you how humbling it can be. And just when you think you know what you're doing, along comes something new to throw you back. I do think that gardening is about creativity. It is okay to be curious and creative with plants from other regions, other continents, other nations. If we didn't import plants, you know, we wouldn't have tomatoes, or at least the Italians wouldn't have tomatoes. So I think it's great to try new things in new places. What is so wonderful about the plants of the Bible is they have survived, obviously, for thousands of years. They're worth a try. And it's fun, and it's a fun connection. In the end, yes, it's wonderful to have a garden full of native plants, but who wouldn't want to plant a rose bush here or there? Those don't originate here. We all give ourselves little permissions, whether we realize it or not. So I'm just going to say, go ahead and give yourself some big permission to try plants from other regions too, to make a complete garden. It's okay. It's okay. I've heard the Bible referred to as the original God's <laughs> garden knowledge book. 
What applications have you found in the Bible for gardening? Oh, so many. That's what's so fun. That's what I love to say, too, is that we all know the Bible starts out in the Garden of Eden. God planted a garden in Eden. And Eden, by the way, means delight. That's one translation of it. So to plant a garden in Eden is to plant a garden in delight. I like to look at that both as that was his location where he planted the garden. But if you look at garden as a verb, he planted a garden in delight, like he was having fun when he did it. I think we can all relate to that with the fun that we have planting our gardens. That's what's fun about my new book, My Father is the Gardener, is it goes chapter by chapter in the steps that a gardener takes to put a garden together. So the first thing you do is choose your plants. God has all kinds of verses about how he chooses things. And it leads us to learn about his intention behind what he does and his deliberation and his uh, attention that he gives to things. And then he prepares the soil. There's a lot of soil preparation in our life. That's a very strong metaphor. I think we would all agree. And he prepares us and then plants things, waters things. Watering is a huge theme throughout the Bible. Everything from the living water to the fact that you are either in a garden or a desert in most of those Bible stories. They're just all these things go on. Cultivating is, of course, a big theme, a big way, a big really approach to life that God is teaching us because and cultivating implies time. So there's a lot of things we just need to do over and over again across time to let the goodness develop, to let the harvest come to us. Those are great things. There's even a lot in there about composting. <laughs> it's just really fun. If you start from beginning to end, you sift through a lot to find these verses. Hopefully my book makes it a little easier to get right to those metaphors and verses before you go off exploring on your own. You got my curiosity up. I need to know about (laughs) composting in the Bible. That's a lot of fun. We introduced the chapter on composting. One of my favorite, I think most people would agree or would say that God has a sense of humor. We love to say that phrase, but he really does. There's a lot of humor and a wordplay in his word. And of course, as gardeners, we all have a sense of humor. Sometimes it's a little (laughs) weird and only fellow plant geeks would understand. But I do think it's so fun that there is this flower in the Bible called dove's dung. That's what my chapter on composting starts with, which is so funny. It's another way of talking about the star of Bethlehem. They're little bulbs from the lily family. They're cousins probably to onions and in that family. It blooms with white flowers and they spread really easily. They naturalize very easily. So it is said that back in the days of the Holy Land that there would be hillsides or they just these huge drifts of these white flowers would be blooming. How that got the name Dove's Dung? <laughs> Who names a flower after bird poop? I don't know. But I just thought that was very funny to look at that in relation to composting. That's a very fun chapter. There's lots of talk of worms and, of course, returning to the dust. That whole natural process is alluded to quite often. How many plants are there actually referred to in the Bible? Oh, there are well over 100 plants in the Bible. My book only looks at 18 choice plants, but you can find many plants of the Bible books there that are focused just on that, and they'll give you an A to Z of the plants of the Bible. 
Some are referred to outright, like olive trees are pretty abundant in there, pretty easy to understand. Then there's other ones like bay laurel tree that are hinted to in a more general term, and a lot of the Hebrew names are just more general terms. Things like flowers of the field, that's a more general botanical term referring to wildflowers. Then from there, biblical botanists will look at this crown anemone is one that grows quite prolifically. Poppies also grow quite well in the hillside in the springs. Some of those we have to infer, and then others like the olive are named outright. It's a lifetime study for many people. The simple answer to your question is there are at least over 100, probably closer to 120, 140 plants. I know your first chapter, you're talking about choosing olive trees. Give us a little sample of that or taste of what you're talking about in that chapter. Yeah, so I decided to open each chapter relating to the work that a gardener does in succession to plant a garden and then keep it, water it, cultivate it, etc., I thought it would be fun to start with a plant that kind of relates to that type of garden work. For example, in the pruning chapter, I talk about apple trees because apple trees are a tree that needs a lot of pruning in order to get that great fruit harvest choosing olive trees. uh, I made that association because of that wonderful moment when Noah's Ark has been built and Noah sets sail, if you will, because of the flood and Obviously, it must be a very traumatic time for Noah and his family, not knowing what's going to happen next. The whole world is destroyed in that flood. Yet, he sends out the dove, and it first comes back. Then he sends out the dove again, and it comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. That is such a moment of magnificence, even though it's a small bird with a small leaf in his beak, because the olive tree, such an abundant tree, especially to those in the ancient world. It provided oil for the olive fruits, and that oil was good for cooking. It was good to nourish your skin. It was good for lamplight. It's an abundant product that they needed in their homes, and it really signified a home life, a home abundance, a home prosperity to have those olive trees. For the olive tree, the leaf in the dove's beak that comes back to Noah, that's God just saying, Noah, It's going to be okay. We're going to go forward from here. I choose you. You're important to me. I love you. And we're going to reestablish your life. It's going to be good. It's going to be productive and prosperous. You're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to start this over. It's a real symbolic moment that is just to reinforce with us that abundance that comes through the olive tree symbolically resonates with how God chooses us and he has plans for us and he notices us. He wants to be with us. He makes things for our lives. It's just a beautiful thing, I think. How did you find that gardening satisfies the soul? Gardening satisfies the soul, doesn't it, though? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it brings so many things together. It brings our curiosity. Most of all, I think it unleashes a creativity. So whether you like to plant vegetables or you like to plant flowers or you just like to cut the grass or you just uh, get a certain aggression out when you rake those leaves in the fall... You just enjoy being outside. You like to putter around. You like to be with the clear skies and the fresh breezes. I think it just stimulates us sensory-wise, and it gives us a good soul satisfaction to get some work done, get a little dirty, but it also clean up something. Maybe if you have brush to cut back or dead limbs to cut off the trees, so you get that cleaned up or you get those leaves raked up. 
we're into lots of leaf raking with the fall here. There's a satisfaction in the work, but there's also a beauty. I really think that because God planted a garden, I believe he's present there with us as we do that work. And that peace and that satisfaction that comes over us is really from being in his presence. It's a beautiful thing. There's a botany side of gardening, but would you talk about the art side of gardening? Yes, I was so excited to get to put this book together with the Botanical Research Institute of Texas. Yes, botany and gardening go hand in hand, but they are very unique to each and to their own. The botanists like to collect the plants and press them and preserve them and note them and really have a taxonomic view of what is growing where and when. It's a very scientific approach. It's a certain kind of love, whereas gardeners are looking more at the live plants, the open plants and the open field how they grow and how they can combine together in different garden views, either nourish us or bear flowers for the table. How will it be? I love that both of these intersect with art and especially botany being a very scientific study, but yet the documentation has been a completely artistic endeavor. Botanical art is just wonderful. And it's been wonderful to look back through We used a lot of old botanical prints to illustrate the book as well, which was a lot of fun digging through those. I don't think you can get very far in science without having an artistic component to it. I just think that's how God brought the world together in a very artful and mindful and orderly way. The botanical art has a wonderful history to it and a wonderful beauty. It's been wonderful to bring those together. You have some not only archived art, but you have some original art in your book. Oh, yes. This was a true dream. We got to work with a local artist, Layla Luna, who is from Fort Worth and actually used to work at the Botanical Research Institute of Texas. She's just a wonderful artist. It was great to work with her. We had the Botanical Prints. The Botanical Research Institute of Texas has two main components. They have a wonderful botanical library, and then they also have an herbarium. The herbarium is actually how they got started. They have over a million specimens collected and housed there at their research facility. We pulled the ones out that related to our biblical plants. Yes, most of our biblical plants that we featured had specimens in their archives, and we also borrowed a few from the lending process among herbariums is very generous. We brought those together, but then Layla came along to just bring in that earthy, hand-touched moment and really speak to us through gardening images. She drew wonderful pictures of watering cans, gloves, fountains, trowels, and shovels. It was a dream come true to work with Layla and our book designer, Becky Horn to watch these layers of just information and illustration come together to really just capture us. Since we're in a glancing world with these phones in our hand, we're used to seeing images at a glance. We wanted to be able to capture some of that in this book as well. There's a lot to read if you have time to read, but there's also just wonderful illustrations to glance over when you just need a few minutes to soothe and reconnect. We tried to do both. Do you see botany and gardening as more than a metaphor? I think botany and gardening is just a wonderful interplay. I am not a botanist. Thank God for my botanist, but I am not one. My editor is a marvelous botanist, so we had a good time working together. I learned so much from him. That's Barney Lipscomb. But the botanist is very much more on 
the plants and their structure, their physiology, where they are located at what time and that collection, always looking for new plants, undiscovered plants, documenting what's growing where. Whereas I feel as a gardener, I just want to dig in. I just want to create my garden where I am, what's available to me. Certainly having the botanical understanding is very helpful to start to understand how plants are classified in families so that similar plants will behave in similar ways. That's just a good working knowledge that you grow over a lifetime as a gardener. Say things in the mint family are going to respond and react and grow in a certain way. You can start to anticipate that if you know maybe a new plant or you want to try a new thing. Maybe you've grown rosemary and and mint, but you've never tried sage. So they're all actually part of the same mint family of herbs. So that kind of gives you a knowledge of where to begin or how to get started. From there, you can learn the nuances of a specific species or genus. But the families really help us relate and understanding plants and their families. That background botany is very helpful. All right, what is your favorite garden passage? I'll tell you a funny story about that, actually. Of course, the best garden, I shouldn't say the best. They're all great and wonderful. But if you go to the Song of Songs, that has the most plant references and joy and delight packed in one short seven or eight chapters to that book. That's a good place to start. The Garden of Eden is in Genesis 1, and there's a few things that are stated, but by the time we get to Song of Songs, they're writing down things on scrolls that can be a little more descriptive, I think, so we get a lot more information when we're in Song of Songs, which is so fun. I love the verses in there about King Solomon. A king is saying to his beloved bride, let's go down to the countryside and see what's in bloom. And you can just feel that excitement, that energy, just like when you think, I want to go outside and see what's going on today out there. So I love that passage. But there's one passage where it it just talks about going to check on things and also about waking up in the springtime. It says the winter is past and the blooms are starting to show. And there's this little phrase in there. I heard the cooing of doves in the land. I live in a suburban neighborhood, very normal, boring suburban. I'm not a cool urban farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm not a romantic farmer's daughter, but I'm in the suburbs. I travel down the alley to park in the back when I'm getting to our house. And this neighbor on our alley, he used to love to feed the birds on his driveway. He would scatter out all this bird seed and just be surrounded mostly in pigeons. I got to say, I was being probably too judgmental. What a mess, all those pigeons around and all that bird seed. I didn't say anything, but in my heart, I was not very kind to this neighbor. And I thought, oh, but along with all those pigeons were doves. And so one morning when I was down and out and I turned to Song of Songs, I thought, oh, let me read this gardening passage, cheer myself up and let God cheer me up with his excitement over gardening in Song of Songs. And when I got that passage, the winter has passed and I heard the cooing of doves in the land. I thought, oh my gosh, I can hear doves in my yard because my neighbor has been feeding them. It's okay. I'm not going to judge him anymore (laughs) this is the word come to life here so (laughs) So. it goes back to god's sense of humor doesn't it yes (laughs) what does gardening you've told us some of this but what does gardening unlock for you i think it really unlocks creativity i love that i love to be able to go outside something about reconnecting in the land, but also moving things around, trimming things and cleaning them up as they need to be cleaned up. Um, I was outside this morning planting some mums. It's been a very long, hot summer, but it just felt good to be back in the dirt and clearing up some of the weeds, trimming off some of the dead branches, but putting those mums in the ground and just giving that a fresh look, a refreshment. I just love that. Love that. 
It's just a satisfaction that you can clean and dust your house. That can be satisfying, but nothing like <laughs> moving the dirt around and cleaning up outside. Now, you're trained as an architect. How do you relate that to gardening? Oh, I think that is so fun. I, it's the last laugh. Like I say, I keep coming back to the humor of gardening, but I loved my architectural training. It was a wonderful beginning of my career. Then I stayed home to raise our families. When they were all in school and I had some more time, I wasn't ready to go back indoors all day. We'd been had a wonderful time, been out to the parks and taking walks and riding bikes and playing in the yard. I just wanted to stay out there. So I turned more to gardening and garden design and garden writing as opposed to going back into architecture. I always like to think it's so funny with architecture because as you're designing your spaces and you're choosing your materials, whether you choose stone or brick or choose wood or even if you do a painted wood or painted trim, those all those things are wonderful. It's very fascinating to choose all those materials and bring them together, but they're right where you leave them. If you paint something pretty forest green trim, it's going to stay that way. Of course, still needs to be repainted. But what's fun about gardening, you do the same kind of thing. You design, you have your, your plants are like your palette. And you might think, oh, I'm going to plant, plant this here. It's got some orange in the flower. So then I'll bring in this other shrub that has some a tinge of orange in its foliage or you, this kind of thing. You start to assemble all this. But then they grow and they go wild and they're taller than you thought or they're fuller than you thought or they die and they, you left this whole hole here. It's just this never-ending creative process and it takes you by surprise. So it's a lot of fun that way, I think. Yeah. But to me, what you're describing is static versus dynamic. Yes. And not to belittle the static structures because you need those too. Yeah. Fun to put in a little sculpture here or there or some kind of trellis or that sort of thing. You need that. Like something's going to stay in place before these exactly. vines go crazy. How involved is your family in your gardening? Oh, I love my family. They're not quite as fanatical as I am. We'll say it that way politely. Our kids are wonderful. They're grown there in their early 20s. I have a feeling as they come around to their own homes or patios, container pots and that sort of thing, I think they'll be more interested. A few of them grow seedlings on their windowsills, so that's very exciting. I loved just being outside with them as they were growing up. They were involved in my gardening, whether they really realized it or not, but I would say, let's go out and play. That was really so that I could plant some herbs or gather some crops. One project we did together really that got me started, I'd say almost just about the same time that I read Secrets of the Vine, we had this path that we used to take the trash out. We have two girls and three boys. So early on, I thought boys need to take out trash for their mama. Let's make this fun. We go down the side of our house, take the trash from the garage out to the curb twice a week. It was really muddy along the side of the house because there's a swale to keep us from the neighbor's house. We don't have a fence. It's all open and continuous. Right? It's like, boys, let's build a stone path out here so that your feet don't get somebody. It was a big, fun project. Load them up in the car. There was a stone place a couple miles away that you'd go and they had a big scale and you'd weigh the car. Then you'd go out, pick out the stones, put them in your car and then come back and they'd weigh it again. That's how they knew how much you'd collected, how they're going to charge you this will be fun for little boys to watch this big production going on and all these big trucks around here. We bring the stones home. We're laying them out, digging them in one by one, which took more than a few days. 
I just kept saying to him, you know, in all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. I would say it to him over and over again as we're working on digging these stones into the dirt. Hopefully that sunk in their memory. And every time they're taking out the trash, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I still remember it. I don't know about them. Don't remember now that they're gone and I take out the trash by myself. Those are just little ways God's word can just come into your own yard, into your own life where you can start relating to it. It's really fun. My husband, I like to say, I'm a gardener and he's normal. (laughs) He doesn't garden as much per se, or I should say he's not as much a tinkering personality. So he doesn't need to go out there and pull weeds to feel satisfied. He's a hunter, so he loves to walk the fields. He definitely loves to be outdoors. That's a lot of fun. But he likes to say that the most productive crop in our yard is our boysenberry patch. He grew up in California near the Knottsbury Farm and the home of the boysenberry where that was propagated. He remembers those boysenberry brambles. That was real popular among his neighbors growing up. We planted boysenberries. It's a big harvest in May. We make a bunch of pies and we have good fun. He'll always say, as I'm going out to water, are you watering my boysenberries? Even if they're not completely interested in it, there's little ways to draw them in. It's just irresistible. Yeah. What can we say? I was reading your blog on a millet plant that just sprung up in your garden. Yesterday, I went to a sod supplier and picked up some sod. They had probably five acres of millet growing there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> going back down there Thursday, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go out there and cut a few heads off and apply what she was saying. I don't guess I'll get enough to make any bread, but I'd like to grow some. Maybe I'll get some that still has seed in it. Yes, see, this was hilarious. Another Bible humor. This plant starts sprouting up in my yard at the beginning of summer. At first, I thought it was corn. I don't have a farming background, so I'm not familiar with all the grains so much. Here comes the big leaves are broad like corn when it gets started. And I thought I did grow corn a few years ago, so maybe one random kernel is still around. <laughs> what is the sprouting? It kept growing. It wasn't corn. I just kept watching it, and then its little seed head came up. Then I finally Googled it it's millet no it was sorghum i think it was sorghum which is part of bird seed i don't know what it's doing in my yard but then as it turned out that millet and spelt are usually the words named in ezekiel 4 9 when ezekiel he's a prophet of the lord he's sentenced to the lord to lay on his side for one day for every year that the israelites had sinned against god and god gives him this very specific recipe for the bread for what he's to eat while he's lying on his side it's basically like a form of fasting Usually it's translated wheat and barley. Those are more familiar, which are also very fun to grow. Even if you're just a gardener and not a farmer, they're elegant grains to grow as ornamental grasses in the yard. I'd always wanted to grow the millet and spelt, which are also in that verse. It is usually translated millet, although sorghum has a much better drought tolerance. Most Bible botanists will tell you that sorghum was probably more likely of a grain. Millet needs a little more water for that region. Sometimes the Bible botanists and the Bible translators don't always get together. (laughs) We usually read it as millet and spelt, but it could also have been sorghum and spelt. No, it's just this surprise plant, but they're really pretty when you just look at the grain heads. I thought next year, now that I have more seeds, I want to grow more than one. I'll grow them in a row since they do so well in the summer. They're pretty. Yeah, and I misspoke on that. It was actually sorghum that I was observing. And I thought it was millet, but when I asked the people 
they said, no, it's sorghum. To follow it up the next day and read what you'd written in your blog, I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I didn't know any of that, so I appreciate that. It really does. And then it connects us back into just the themes of bread that are throughout God's word. And then to start to look at them over time. I mean, he gave manna to the Israelites while they were traveling through the Sinai. And then later Jesus says, he's the bread of heaven. There's just many instances of bread. And when you start to look at how all those layer together, it's just very beautiful. Ezekiel was foretelling the role of Christ as he's laying on his side. Then later Jesus says, no greater love is to lay down your life for your friends. It's just a very special moment and that can be signified in your own garden and just really connect to it in a special way. Yeah. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I'll tell you one thing I would love people to acknowledge. How do I say it? I want to give everyone permission to call themselves gardeners. I meet so many women. We'll meet in a church or in a women's group or something like that. And I'll say, are you a gardener? They'll say, oh, no, I planted a few things, but they didn't really grow. And if you like to work in the garden, you are a gardener. (laughs) A garden needs a gardener that they go together. That's what's so beautiful about God telling us he's a gardener is that we know he's going to be devoted to us no matter how we turn out, right? (laughs) That he's going to be devoted to us. If you like to work in the yard and it's joyful to you and you have fun getting your mums and pansies in the fall or you're ordering your bulbs and it's not about whether your garden looks like the cover of Horticulture Magazine or something how that practice of being outside and cultivating if that inspires you then you are a gardener give yourself permission like I said I've been at this over 30 years and I still (laughs) feel like a beginner you seem much more sophisticated Craig maybe that feeling goes away but I think there's always a little humility of it coming through yeah it's all challenging you get things that you're familiar with but you never learn it all that's right that's the exciting part about it is that There's always something new to learn. There's always something new to try. There's always revealing itself in new ways. Just doing this podcast, I've had so much revealed. It's like learning on steroids. And every time I talk to somebody, I want to say, oh, I got to try that. I want to do that. Of course, I don't have enough time to do everything that I hear. I like to say it puts a craving on me to do it. So I'll fulfill that craving one day. Yes. Yes. What's your earliest garden memory? My cousins and I, we would all meet up. Our parents would bring us to our great-grandmother's house. She loved to garden. She had a beautiful yard in Fresno, California. Every visit when we went to her house, it would start with her garden tour, what she was growing, what was blooming, what she was working on. And uh, she was mainly a flower gardener, so she would show us her roses. And I don't even remember all the flowers, but I do remember they had two huge, tall cottonwood trees in the back of their house. She used to tell us how her and granddad planted those trees, and they seemed like skyscrapers to me as a little girl. The fact that they brought those trees home in their car and planted them, I just couldn't believe that they brought great shade to the house, which you need in Fresno. She just really inspired me as a little girl, and I think that happens a lot. Her care and excitement was what kind of drew me in. And then we also would meet up at my great aunt's house, who she was up in the foothills of California. Her house was a little more mountainous. It was mostly tall pine trees and forests that we loved to run around in and make forts with the pine needles and have a lot of fun out there. 
part of her garden, which we were usually there around Thanksgiving. I never really knew this growing up, but she was a big gardener. Her vegetable beds were on the front side of her house that were usually under snow by the time we were there. Later, my cousin, her daughter, said, yes, that was her vegetable garden. So, of course, she was a gardener. We just had such joy playing in their yard, and there were just little vignettes, little benches, and different pots and things that they kept. We knew that they cared about the land. We knew that they put their heart into it. We perceive that as we're running around playing and terrorizing her yard, probably. <laughs> that just endeared me to, to know that once, when I had the space, that's what I wanted to do, too. How about telling us a funny garden story? Oh, there are so many funny garden stories. One of the first plants I wanted to grow when I was working on all this was hyssop, which is a plant from the mint family. It's in one of the chapters of my new book. It's such a great plant to get to know. But it says in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. It's not a very common plant in these parts, right? And who, who knows hyssop unless you read the Bible, maybe. So I'm like, what is hyssop? What does it mean to be cleansed with hyssop? What is this plant? first of course I ordered seeds and planted seeds of hyssop and nothing happened then I tried to get the next season and again nothing happened then I ordered online from a wonderful nursery out in the Squaw Valley California area Mountain Valley growers will sell uh, little four inch pots you can order it's a Syrian oregano is another name for what the species that they think is probably hyssop Once I got that, once I had starts, it went much better. I still have two huge mounds of those today growing in our yard. It's oregano-ish because it's in the oregano genus, but it has its own little special scent to it as well. You can cook with it. You can put it in your spaghetti sauce and stuff if you want to, but it does have its own little unique smell. And especially when it's combined with cedar branches, which there's another place where it talks about King Solomon knew everything, knew all about plants from the great cedar to the lowly hyssop. When you combine cedar and hyssop, it has this very unique scent as well. What the funny part is, I tried and tried to raise it by seed and couldn't get anywhere. Then I went to four-inch transplants. Now, every spring, I have volunteers of hyssop all over my yard. I don't mean it invades the yard, but I'm just saying that in a little garden bed over here and then a little corner over there and then maybe 15, 20 feet apart, I find these itty bitty plants starting to grow. And I think, what? I couldn't grow you from seed, but obviously you can grow from seed because here you are starting on your own. So that's back to the humility of gardening. Well, what's a garden myth you'd like to smash? I want to smash all fear of gardening. I think we need to break through that. There is too much fear and anxiety in our world right now. And I think we can all fight back with gardening. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to sound superficial because there are some very real fears and anxieties there. But I'm here to tell you that the garden is here to heal those. The garden is here to bring you joy, even if your anxiety or your sorrows haven't ended. I think the garden can teach you how to have both. I think that gardening is actually a very forgiving place. And I think it's wonderful to experience that forgiveness when you're caring for the land. 
For example, I'm a perfectionist by nature. I wanted to get it right, do the right thing and follow all the steps. But then I forget <laughs> you know, that I can't remember. I, I'm lazy and I don't do all the steps. They say to do this and this and I do maybe the first thing and then forget the rest. Or It's just amazing how forgiving the garden is anyway. It's amazing how things can grow whether you apply the perfect fertilizer or not, or maybe you don't even fertilize, or maybe I just think it's a wonderful way with your own hands, your own eyes and ears and your own sense that you smell to just move into that forgiveness of God's. God is inviting us to forgiveness. He doesn't want to see us living in fear. He doesn't want to see us ruled by anxiety. He has healing for us. Oh my gosh, the wonderful verse at the end of the book. Let me give you the spoiler alert. At the end of Revelation, it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So what if you go out to your garden and just realize those leaves on every bush, on every shrub, those can speak to you about the healing that God has for us. Let it heal you. It's a good thing. Yes. It's a good thing out there. Your writing career, garden career, who's been your biggest influencer? Oh, there are so many great people that have gone before us writing so many wonderful things. Not to sound like an old timer, but with my hometown newspaper, the Dallas Morning News used to have a garden section on Thursdays. I'd wait all week for that paper to come out. There were some wonderful columnists in there that helped me get started, Mariana Green and Howard Garrett. Howard was kind of champion of organic gardening in our area at the time, so they were a great way to get started. I went to a lecture early on at our local Dallas Arboretum with Rosalind Creasy. Rosalind is a wonderful author out of California, and she was one of the first people to dig up the front lawn and plant all these vegetables. She was really a foodscaper before there was such a thing as foodscaping. She just really encouraged to put little pockets of food wherever you could and to treat food plants, nourishing plants as ornamentals or as beautiful plants, not just only for rows in the vegetable garden. She was one that inspired me to put pockets of herbs wherever I could. That was a lot of fun, starting off with their influence. What is the most memorable garden advice that you've ever been given and who gave it to you? Oh, yes. Actually, this came from a book as well. Not to say that the many gardeners in my life have not given me advice, but early on, I'm very grateful to have read this wonderful book called Two Gardeners, A Friendship in Letters. It was Emily Herring Wilson is the one that put it together, but it is that she compiled the letters between Catherine White, who was a gardener up in the Northeast. She actually wrote for the New Yorker magazine, and then Elizabeth Lawrence, who is from the South. Those two corresponded in letters over the years. Emily Wilson went to put all those letters together so you can read the responses back and forth. Here are these two just known women in the gardening industry, and their letters are so precious. I just learned so much reading what they were saying to each other because most of the time they were complaining about, no, I shouldn't say complaining, they were writing about plants that had died or things they hadn't gotten to yet or how their work had backed up and they couldn't get to this, they couldn't get to that. It really just gave me a great perspective early on. Like you were saying earlier, Craig, there is always something you're going to want to do. There's always a project that you haven't gotten to yet. There's always work to be done. And then, of course, there's always a quick change in the weather that all of a sudden you have to cover your plants or get seeds in the ground or what have you. They really set my expectation, I guess you'd say, 
I think that's one big thing of gardening is just to learn to make peace with all that you haven't done yet. (laughs) And just know that, yes, if you just keep working slowly but surely, little by little, that's a wonderful verse in Exodus that God says, little by little, I will turn this land over to you. And it is a little by little effort and just learning to make peace with that and not let all the undone work take the joy from the moment. What's your most valuable garden mistake? I do like to plant a lot of herbs wherever I can. I planted one of those hyssop transplants under a tree. I didn't really think about it too much, but it turned out that the birds perched on the branch above that hyssop transplant. That poor little herb was covered in bird poop all the time. I thought, oh, that's not where you want to grow herbs and edibles. So keep your herbs away from trees where birds like to hang out. That didn't happen to be doves did it doing composting yeah actually i think it was those neighbors (laughs) that's where you put the flower bulbs not the herbs that you want to eat later what have you recently learned about gardening we talked a little bit about the millet and sorghums because that just landed in my yard i ended up learning a lot more about those and the ancient grains then another garden catastrophe that's turned out for fun The front of our house has a formal composition. I had these two juniper trees planted symmetrically, pyramidal-shaped junipers, and one of them has just out and died. I don't know why one died and not the other. It was a very hot summer, of course, but why one went and the other one didn't is one of those mysteries. You do have to make peace with the mysteries of gardening, too. Mm -hmm. I thought, now what are we going to do? I can't replant it because the one that's still standing, it'll be so much bigger we have to change up that design and go for a more asymmetrical look that gave me opportunity for this wonderful little crab apple tree that I've discovered I ordered that and I get to plant that this week when the weather cools off a little bit it just gave an opportunity to try something new like we've been talking about we don't grow a lot of crab apples in our area but it was wonderful to travel up to Minnesota this summer with a gardening conference and just see that crab apples are just in that region they're Like bread and butter, I think. Every garden had their crab apples. It's tricky to grow apple trees in our area because we don't have the chilling hours that are needed. To try crab apple where I'm not so concerned with the produce of it, I'm more interested in the ornamental and certainly the spring flowering. Uh, I'm excited to try a lollipop crab apple, which is a proven winner's treat. Our friend from Garden Call, Maria Zampini's father, was the one who propagated that tree. He held that distinction, and since it's my friend's father, and my book is My Father is the Gardener, it's just a really sweet moment to plant that tree in our yard. Very excited. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have joy. (laughs) I have tons of joy. It brings joy to my heart to see even just a flower bloom, even to see what flower survived a hot summer or what little plant survived a big freeze we didn't expect. I don't know. It's just a very joyful, uplifting place. You're in Texas. I like to find out from folks what their soil's like. Would you tell us how you grow in your garden? Uh, oh, yes. My little plot of land in the great state of Texas is all clay soil. As difficult as it is to garden in clay, that is like a built-in lesson on preparing the soil. I can't do anything until I amend the soil with 
lots of compost and hummus and even some expanded shale. I've got to constantly add things to the soil to try to get it into a workable condition that doesn't completely sweat my brow no matter what I do out there. God has a certain discipline to the way he trains us up. And I think that that it's ended up being a good thing, even though we would hardly ever call clay soil a good thing. But it just has put me right into the practice of composting and amending the soil from the get-go. I just always knew that I needed to work that soil and prepare it. And it's just the way I approach everything that we have to do, which led me to have a compost pile. And I'd like to say I just want to do all the right things in gardening, but really, I'm just lazy. The best thing you could do is have your own compost pile. You just pile all your leaves, all your grass cuttings, all the branches that you've clipped. You just put them all in a pile and you come back several months later and they are workable hummus for your soil. It's the best thing going around. I got tired of constantly going to the garden center to get a bag or two. Every time I wanted to do anything, I just started making it right there at the end of our backyard. It's just a built-in goodness. God uses everything for good. That's the best way I can illustrate and describe that verse. That it's just made me much more aware and more diligent, more conscientious of the soil and keeping a good soil condition, which that's the best way to lead to healthy plants instead of trying to formulate the right fertilizer, this and that. Just start with the soils i've been waiting the whole podcast and i've almost asked you this question several times but how many plants from the bible do you have growing in your garden oh let's see i don't know if i've counted them up i tried to grow every plant that's in this book that just came out so that's at least 18 well, I'm not quite there yet. Like I say, I'm planting chapter 11 is on pruning. So we talked about apple trees in that chapter, but also the apricot tree, because it probably was more likely that the Bible's reference to apples, it was got translated apple tree, but apricots might have been a better botanical fit for most of those verses that reference apples. So I'm yet to get an apricot tree, hopefully this fall, now that it's tree planting time, I get to try one of those. Uh, But I do need to grow it in an espalier shape because I'm out of room. I'm pretty much shaded myself out because there's so many wonderful trees. I'll try to grow them all before I'm taken on up to the promised land in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? I really had a good poppy season. I look forward to planting more poppies. Usually poppies are a little seed that you want to plant in the fall so that they get a start before the winter and then they bloom in the late spring. That's part of the wildflower season in the Holy Land is a red blooming season. It's just supposed to be spectacular. It's a series of red flowers that bloom one after the other. I didn't get their seeds planted early enough last year, but right in early December, we ended up having a freak freeze. I had this whole bed um, of bitter herbs ready to just carry us into the spring that all got taken out because the temperature dropped so bad. Then I thought, well, okay, and put my poppy seeds out then. Even though that was a little bit late, you probably want to start right about now or in the next few weeks. Hopefully this year I will get a better head start because we had a few, but I'd love to see much more. What plant are you in love with this week? In addition to my apple tree that's on the way, or my crab apple tree, I'm super excited about myrtles. Those are also in the book. And myrtle is not crepe myrtle, like most of us would assume, but it's a whole different plant family. The myrtles are just a real soft leaf, evergreen. They're a zone nine tree. I had them planted in my yard a few years back, and they, of course, froze. 
I pushed that zone a little too much, but this year I ordered some more in transplants and I'm going to keep them in pots. I'm going to be good. And when it gets cold, I'm going to bring them indoors. I'm going to train them as topiary forms. They're really well shaped like a boxwood. They'll take a good form. I've ordered some topiary forms to keep those trimmed. And hopefully I'm going to work on trying to bring them in at Christmas time have to be coming indoors anyway with the freezes to bring them in as Christmas decorations as evergreen trees indoors. I'm going to see how that does and hopefully write about that. But they just have a really sweet scent to their leaves. So it's worth it to try it just to smell the scent. You can actually cook with them. You wouldn't eat the leaves. It's like a bay leaf. You would take the leaf and let it steam or simmer in the liquid and then take the leaf out. You don't actually eat it, but the oils would go into the liquid. They're sweeter. So maybe maybe like for icing on a cake or a glaze. That's where I've tried them before on glaze over cookies. They're fun that way. I love because they're referred to several times. So it's a lot of fun studying and getting to know those. They're my favorite references when Isaiah talks about instead of the thorn bush, the myrtle will grow. And so when you just this plant is just like I said, it's evergreen, a little bit glossy leaf, almost like a holly, but it's soft and aromatic. It's much more pleasing to be with than a prickly old holly or certainly a prickly thorn bush. It's again, those just those subtleties in the botany that really lets you know, kind of brings you into this way that God writes about opposites. I'm going to take you from something prickly and thorny to something sweet and soft and comforting and sensual, uh, sweet smelling. Um, so anyway, I'm very excited about that. Hopefully it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that we ever talked about where to get your book. Oh, yes. Of course, it's available on Amazon, which is a great place to get it. You can get it under Prime Delivery there. You can also order directly from the publisher, Brit Press. They are a department of the Fort Worth Botanic Garden here in Fort Worth, Texas. So the best place is to come to my website, and there's a books tab, and you can see the different places to order. Powell's also carries it online. And we are slowly but surely making our way into some of the retail garden shops that sell garden books. Hopefully, you will find it in a retailer before long but definitely online. Do you have any final thoughts? Yes, Craig, thank you for your time. Thank you for your interest and thank you for your devotion. We love the garden question. I speak for all your listeners when I say it's really a joy to be with you today. And I just like to say to you and to all the listeners, God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and bring you his peace. Thank you. Shelly, tell us how people may connect with you. Oh, I would love for you to connect with me. My website is gardenindelight.com. I also love to post here and there on Instagram, and that's at Shelly Cram altogether. And then I also have an author Facebook page, Shelly S. Cram, that also goes by God's Word for Gardeners. So come find me in any of those places. I would love to connect with you. This has been episode 136. Harvesting Hope, Nurturing the Soul in the Garden with Shelly Crown on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Shelly. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. 
please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.